Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books and Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese. I am professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University, and I co-host the channel with Carrie Figdor. Today, I'll be talking with Rosalind Weiss about her new book, Philosophers in the Republic, Plato's Two Paradigms, which has just been published with Cornell University Press. Rosalind Weiss is Clara H. Stewardson Professor of Philosophy at Lehigh University. Contemporary philosophers still wrestle mightily with Plato's Republic. A common reading has it that in the Republic, Plato's character Socrates defends a conception of justice according to which reasons should rule the soul and philosophers should rule the city. On most accounts, the Republic is centrally concerned with the question of what philosophers are and how they come to be. A standard reading contends that the multiple discussions in the Republic of the nature of the philosopher all aim to depict the very same kind of creature. In her new book, Rosalind Weiss challenges this view. She argues that the Republic depicts at least two distinct kinds of philosopher— She then employs this analysis in discussing several puzzles that emerge from the text concerning, for example, the absence of the virtue of piety in the Republic and the curious similarities between Socrates' conception of justice and moderation. The result is a fascinating examination of the Republic that has much to offer both to Plato scholars and to more casual readers of Plato. So let us turn to the interview. Hello, Rosalind Weiss. Hello, Bob. Thank you for joining us on New Books in Philosophy. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that's wonderful. Today on New Books in Philosophy, my guest is Rosalind Weiss, author of the new book, Philosophers in the Republic, Plato's Two Paradigms, published by Cornell University Press. This book is a deeply insightful examination of the conceptions of philosophy that are put on display in Plato's great dialogue, The Republic. Now, although the book is a cutting-edge contribution to Plato scholarship, um, it's also accessible to those who, like me and I suspect uh, many others, uh, regularly read and even teach uh, Plato, particularly Plato's Republic, um, but don't work in ancient philosophy uh, in any uh, professional way. Um, that is, uh, Rosalind's book um, is to be recommended to Plato experts and to amateurs alike. Um, I think the book, um, I think that both kinds of readers, rather, uh, will find philosophers in the Republic um, eye-opening in certain respects. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about, about those respects in a minute. Um, but before getting into those details, uh, Rosalind, why don't you share something about yourself with, uh, with our listeners? Fine. Thank you very much. Um, I had no exposure to philosophy until college. I, I suppose that um, in those days that was pretty uh, par for the course. Um, in my first philosophy course, uh, my freshman year of college, Brooklyn College, um, I was exposed to Plato's Republic and um, just uh, thoroughly taken with it without knowing why, without I think, really understanding the book. I still think it's true that I don't really understand the book. Um, it's, it, it's very complicated. It has so many facets. Um, what I hope to have contributed is my understanding of one of those facets. Um, I, I uh, find myself attracted both to the ancients and to medieval philosophers, um, if you'll excuse how crudely I'm putting this, um, I find that ancient and medieval philosophers talk about things, and more contemporary philosophers talk about talking about things. 
Right. So, so in that sense, I feel that in interpreting Plato and writing about him, and also about other medieval, uh, ancient and medieval philosophers, I feel that I'm sort of only two two removes from the things instead of three removes from the things. <laughs> um, so I, I I do feel that there is a kind of wisdom, a kind of um, uh, engagement with the things that matter so much. Um, where being a philosopher and thinking things philosophical uh, change who you are as a person, change how you how you make your way in the world, change how you live, um, and it, it you know it's it's um, what I would say is it's not academic, um, and and that's one of the things that draws me to the ancients and the medievals for whom these questions were um, life and death issues. Right. So let's pick up on that because I think that makes for a very nice um, segue into discussing um, some of the, the, the background architecture that's driving your book. Um, so let me ask a question about methodology because I know that among um, people working in ancient philosophy and particularly perhaps among Plato scholars, um, there are deep philosophical questions and issues and, as the case may be, divisions um, over methodology. And um, you say early in the book um, that, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm quoting here, that the aim of Plato's dialogues is to put the philosophical life on display. Um, now, I take it that this means that, uh, you know, that, that we're supposed to take seriously the fact that Plato's writing, the dialogue form, is quite unlike the writing of Aristotle, for example, people who write philosophical treatises. And it's even quite unlike um, other philosophers who have tried to employ the dialogue form, like Hume, for example. Um, so it seems that um, your claim is that the, the dialogues are supposed to show us something or put on display something. Um, are we supposed to understand that aim put something on display as distinct from the aim of, say, um, uh, defending a philosophical position or arguing for a philosophical thesis? So I guess the general question then is, um, so to, can you tell us a little bit about the methodological commitments that drive your reading of Plato? I've thought a lot about why somebody would write in dialogue form. Uh, in particular, why someone would write philosophy in dialogue form. Since you mentioned Hume, um, I think with Hume, one could simply say he wrote in dialogue form uh, so as to hide behind his characters and to be, um, in some respect, undetectable. Right. Um, and there are many, many philosophers, many scholars of Plato who, who think Plato did precisely the same thing, that he didn't want to be detected and was hiding behind his characters. I think there might be something to that, um, not discounting it, uh, but it struck me that there, there are two other possibilities for why one might write a dialogue, a dialogue if you're a philosopher. Um, one of those reasons is... Um, because you have a, a certain conception of the philosophic life, which is a life of dialogue, which is a life of thinking together, thinking through things together. And um, one might want to show what such a life might look like by portraying it. So that, that could be one, um, one possible reason for writing um, as a philosopher in the dialogue form. The other thing that struck me, though, is that if one reads Plato's dialogues, they're not even. That is, the, the um, interlocutors are not on a level playing field. Socrates, uh, in the dialogues in which he's prominent, towers above the other figures. So it seems just slightly disingenuous to me to talk about uh, Plato's dialogues as this kind of we're all thinking this through together sort of thing because right. it's, it's really <laughs> it's really not what's happening somebody right. is is in charge so I think um, and I'm not wedded to this view but I think that one conception of philosophy that is perhaps on display here is not simply the thinking together um, but 
philosophy as therapy. That is, um, Socrates uh, as a healer, as someone who through his uh, questions and through his engagement with others uh, tries to improve souls, tries to help people to become more virtuous, to become more thoughtful, to become more just. Um, and if that's the case, then who the interlocutor is, who the person is to whom he's speaking, becomes very important because the message in therapy is not going to be uniform for everyone. It's not going to be consistent across the board. Um, I think perhaps, you know, uh, one might think about Confucius, for example. Would right. Confucius say the same thing to everyone who asked him what is virtue or something like that, or his, right. his equivalent of that? So, and it's clear that he doesn't say the same to everyone. Um, one of the ways of approaching Plato is to try to collect all the things that Socrates says in the various dialogues to the various people and force them to be completely consistent and completely compatible with one another. Um, my way of reading philosophy as therapy kind of um, loosens that uh, restriction. I don't have to see saying the same thing to, to everyone about everything. Any good therapist will tailor his message and his or her message or his or her response to the needs of, of the person, the patient in one case, or or the interlocutor in this case. And um, that doesn't mean that the therapist doesn't have a consistent position. It will just express itself differently uh, as, as the therapist addresses different people. So I think I tend towards seeing the dialogue form that way. It's certainly the dialogues in which you have very lively conversations between Socrates and one of his victims. <laughs> <laughs> Where, uh, you know, the victim really is somebody that Socrates, in, in his own weird way, is trying to help. Right. Um, let me just ask a, a, a quick follow-up about that. Um, so... Um, I, the 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 soul doctor image the um, uh, that, that Socrates is sometimes um, uh, ready to embrace and the the, uh, the the person who's the midwife and um, is engaged in this uh, funny kind of activity for the sake of um, the therapy of the interlocutor or the improvement of the interlocutor um, strikes me as it, it's at least a potential um, uh, misfit. With the the other uh, one of the other prominent sort of Socratic um, uh, um, images, which is of the the person who's not ignorant, uh, who's not ignorant of his ignorance, the person who claims to not know things. Um, does a can somebody both be a soul doctor and profess ignorance of of mo the most important things? That's an excellent question. I I think the answer to that question is that. Anyone who's as deep a thinker as Plato or uh, Socrates, um, or Socrates as Plato portrays him, has to have uh, conclusions to which he's come through all of his thinking. I don't think it makes sense to talk about somebody who's a philosopher and doesn't think anything, doesn't right. reach any conclusions, doesn't have anything to which he's committed as a result of all the thought he's put into these issues. And so one can certainly maintain some um, skepticism about one's own achievements and about one's own conclusions, a certain tentativeness with respect to them, without being wishy-washy, without um, having no views at all. So I think that Socrates has very, very clear and distinct views about virtue, and, and probably Plato does as well. Um, but I think it's perfectly respectable for Socrates to still say, I don't know. That right. is, I don't have the kind of thing that I would call certainty. I don't have the kind of thing that would end in all inquiry and investigation. And I don't have the kind of certainty that puts me in a position to tell you what's what. Right. I can help you to see why the position that you hold 
is probably not the right one. And I think that's basically what his approach is, to try to help you to see why you yourself, if you really think about it, would not hold the position that you claim to hold. Right. Um, let me sort of push uh, just just one, one one step further on the methodology and then, then, then I really want to get to um, the substantive view that you develop in the book. Um, so uh, in your – as you were just speaking, um, you at various times sort of made a distinction between Socrates and Plato. Uh, at one point you talked about what Socrates thinks and what Plato thinks. Um, can, you, can you help me think through the issue of um, how to understand – um, the the philosophical claims or the philosophical stance um, that either you know is reflected by Socrates or represented by Socrates or comes out of the mouth of Socrates are these things that Plato thinks are these things that Plato thinks the historical Socrates thought um, so what exactly you know how do you understand the the Socrates Plato relation. I think Plato is Socrates' biggest fan. Um, I think he wants his readers to see someone who has meant everything to him. Um, I think I think Socrates represents for Plato the philosophic life. Um, I don't think one has to. Um, one has to answer the question, does Plato believe everything that Socrates believes, in the sense that uh, what, what Socrates does in the dialogues is not spew what he believes. He's right. much more interested in, in, in engaging other people in a way that's, that's fruitful, and therefore also fruitful for the reader, because the reader can, um, in his or her own way, join in the conversation. So I do think that, that Plato wants us to like Socrates, uh, whilst also wants us to dislike Socrates. <laughs> um, you know, he wants us to, to appreciate just how obnoxious Socrates could be, but with his heart in the right place. And it's, he's a very fascinating character. I think if Plato were writing about himself, we'd get a very different picture. Right. Um, so I, I'm sorry. I know I said one more, but let me just ask one final bit of the methodology. Um, the doctrines that it looks like Socrates espouses that look, um, at least on the face of them, I will admit, um, sort of more standardly philosophical in the um, more contemporary academic sense that um, at the beginning you, you felt – that you were dissatisfied with, where it does look like there's a lot of talking about how we talk about things that we talk about. Um, so I'm um, thinking particularly of, you know, the theory of forms and the, the way in which there's a certain theory of, you know, predication that gets developed in the cratylus. <laughs> um, uh, are these doctrines that we're supposed to, uh, on your reading, um, we are supposed to emerge from the dialogues um, uh, with the idea that th there are certain metaphysical objects called forms that are abstract and that they bear certain relations to physical objects? And are we supposed to emerge with philosophical doctrines of the sort that are typically n you know, known under the, the name Platonism? Um, does the, this approach, the sort of displaying a philosophical life sort of approach to Plato's dialogues um, cause us to have to rethink um, the passages where it looks as if Socrates is trying to defend or develop what would look to us modern, you know, academic uh, philosophers like a philosophical or metaphysical or epistemic doctrine? Um, I, I would say that, you know, just as, as Socrates believes certain things, Plato believes certain things. I don't know about the word doctrine or dogma um, theory that we, we use, um, I think there's a sense in Plato that's reflected in Socrates that there's something more than the world of flux and change that we live in. There's something higher. There's something more permanent and more stable. Um, maybe this idea was inherited from Parmenides. Um, what exactly that is, 
I'm convinced that Plato believes we couldn't know uh, what that is, uh, what they, what this transcendent thing is. Um, the, the, what separates the philosopher from the non-philosopher is the recognition that there must be such a thing and the yearning for such a thing without um, any kind of certainty about knowing what exactly those things are. Right. So, uh, you know, Plato notoriously uh, is metaphorical when he talks about forms. Uh, the theory of recollection, for example, you don't find it in too many places, and you, in particular, don't find it in the Republic. Right. Um, uh, and at least on my reading, the way you find it in the Phaedo versus the Mino is completely different. So um, I think Plato has a lot of interesting ideas, things that he floats for us to think about. Um, and I think it's, it's kind of a shame that Plato has come to be thought of as somebody so doctrinaire. Right. Of course, one of the, one of the reasons that he presumably wrote dialogues is to avoid being doctrinaire, and yet right. so we take him. Well, excellent. Um, this uh, this all sounds good to me. Um, so, um, one of the things that really attracted me to the book, and, and now I, I, I want to start asking uh, uh, about what's actually you know sort of affirmed in the book. Um, it's one of the things that that attracted me to your book, and um, that I really enjoyed in reading it, um, is that um, sort of again as a casual reader and sometimes uh, teacher of Plato. Um, it always strikes me uh, whenever I read him um, how pervasive is the the question of what philosophy is or what philosophy can do for you or why you should become a philosopher. And in some places, um, the question is put, you know, how can you tell the difference between a philosopher and some other kind of um, uh, person, usually a sophist? Um, and um, it seems as if um, – uh, Socrates throughout the dialogues is regularly being confused for a person of some other kind. Um, I guess the obvious case would be the Apology, um, where you know half of the speech is devoted to Socrates trying to sort of disavow a certain conception of the kind of person that he is. The central plank, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, of your book, is the claim that the various discussions of philosophy and the various depictions of the philosopher in the Republic are depictions of distinct or different conceptions of a philosopher, different kinds of philosopher rather than, um, you know, different ways of describing the same kind of creature. Um, and in fact, the subtitle of the book, Plato's Two Paradigms, uh, sort of signals that. And then you've got a nice sort of subdivision under each of the two paradigmatic categories. Could you run us through uh, a little bit of that taxonomy of the different kinds of philosophers that you think Plato is 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 alerting us to in the Republic? Um, when I have have been over the over the uh, decades dealing with the Republic. One of the big questions that, that always troubled me um, was why Plato made the philosophers in the Republic so unappealing. Uh, they are they seem um, selfish on the one hand. Um, they, do, they don't really seem to care about anyone but themselves. They want to be off on their own, confer, uh, conferring with the forms, and um, not ha have, seem to have no interest in people whatsoever. Um, it seems extremely peculiar to make such people rulers or to see such such people as ideal rulers. Um, and, you know, as I say, the Republic remains an enigma to me, even even though I think I've clarified one tiny aspect of it. Um, so I, I was always uncomfortable with, with the Republic because we have so many depictions of the philosopher throughout the corpus, and we see Socrates in the corpus, and these philosophers in the Republic seem wildly different from any other depiction of philosophers in the, in, in the Platonic corpus. Hmm. Um, you know, there are, there are people who think that, that the, the Republic is, you know, some sort of um, joke, 
right. right? Um, and I think one of the reasons that people think that is is because of how the the philosophers who rule the who rule beautiful city, the Calypolis in the Republic, how they're depicted and, and how unattractive they are. Um, so at, at some point, um, I realized that there were completely different philosophers described earlier on in the Republic. And it started, it, it got me uh, to think that perhaps uh, the philosophers I don't like in the Republic are not the only philosophers in the Republic, and maybe there are philosophers I do like in the Republic. And if that's the case, then the city that's described in the Republic, which is also not particularly likable, <laughs> might not be the only city in the Republic. Right. So, yeah, that was, oh, that was just um, a wonderful thing to discover, to think, well, maybe there's hope yet. And um, I noticed that at one point uh, in the Republic, Socrates is describing philosophers, um, you know, in the most adulatory way, in a way that we all would like them. They have every virtue. They are good people, they're just and moderate and courageous and and charming and everything intelligent. They're, they're just wonderful and they love wisdom. And Socrates says, you know, if, if we just could see the philosopher for what the philosopher really is and how different the philosopher is from the non-philosopher, uh, we would just want so much to be ruled by these people. Right. Um, well, um, after after uh, Socrates describes the philosopher in this way, he's challenged by Adamantus, one of the main protagonists in the Republic. Um, he's actually one in, in real life. He was Plato's brother, as was the other main protagonist uh, protagonist in in the Republic, Glaucon. And Adamantus says to him, yeah, 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 very nice. <laughs> These philosophers that you depict uh, are, are truly wonderful. But the real philosophers, the ones who actually exist and are not just theoretical, the ones who actually exist, are either useless, so I guess he has some picture of philosophers as kind of buffoons, mm-hmm. um, People who are who don't have their feet firmly planted on the ground, who are who are um, whose heads are in the clouds, and who have no practical value whatsoever. So that's one possibility that they're useless. The other possibility is that they're vicious. Right. So clearly, you may be thinking about sophists and um, how corruptive they are to the society. Mm-hmm. Interestingly. Socrates says, hey, that's true. And he seems to to agree even more vehemently with this depiction of philosophers than Adamantus himself, who suggested it. And then he begins to discuss philosophers as useless on the one hand and vicious on the other. The useless philosophers are, as it turns out, Um, philosophers who would be useful if anyone cared to use them. So these are philosophers who really are the good guys. They have a philosophic nature, which means that they love wisdom, and insofar as they love wisdom, they have none of the vices that come with loving things of the body. So they, they are not avaricious they are not uh, lascivious. None of these bad things that come with love of the body, those things are negated as soon as they really and truly love wisdom. Um, what happens is they're, that since they're also very smart, they're also very capable. However, ordinary people don't appreciate them. Ordinary people don't like and don't value the philosopher, and therefore these philosophers who are truly philosophers uh, become useless. It's not any fault of their own. It's simply the fault of those who prefer not to use them. 
So that's your first group of philosophers. These are people who have a philosophic nature and who develop that nature, become very capable, but are nevertheless useful, useless because no one uses them. <laughs> then there are the philosophers, whom he describes next, who have all of these wonderful qualities, or at least start out with them, but they become vicious. Okay, so this is now the second kind of philosophic type. They become vicious because other people um, use them for their own purposes and corrupt them and turn them into vicious people instead of leaving them alone. In other mm -hmm. words, if they were left alone, they would blossom into the first kind of philosopher, but insofar as people can't wait to get their hands on them, uh, they turn into something ugly and vicious, and because of their brilliance and because of their uh, personal qualities, they are even more vicious than ordinary vicious people who, who lack those capabilities. Mm. So that's your second type. The third type is people who, and, and uh, Plato, uh, Socrates describes them at quite great length, people who lack a philosophic nature, but who move in on philosophy once philosophy is abandoned by the second type. Okay, mm. That is, once the, the true philosophic nature people uh, abandon philosophy, then philosophy becomes fair game for people who are by nature not suited to her at all. So we have now three kinds of philosophic types. We have the, the natural philosopher who blossoms into a philosopher but is useless because no one uses him. We have the philosophic nature that is corrupted and becomes vicious. And we have, thirdly, the non-philosophic type who, uh, for some reason, craves philosophy and tries to pass himself off as a philosopher, but he's really a sham philosopher and is also among the vicious types. Hmm. And then there is this strange bird that exists in the Republic. Um, and as I describe him, and as I think Socrates describes him, he too has lacks a philosophic nature, but is turned into a philosopher anyway. Hmm. And these, these uh, philosophers of this last type are the philosophers who rule uh, the city that, that uh, Socrates constructs in the Republic. We can see very clearly from the famous allegory of the cave that these people do not have a philosophic nature. We can see that from the fact that somebody with a philosophic nature loves wisdom, yearns for this higher realm, this transcendent realm where there is real truth and real being. And these philosophers who, who um, are the analogs of the prisoners who are released from the cave, these philosophers have to be dragged kicking and screaming to this other realm. They don't want to be released. They are very happy where they are and um, have no desire, have no inkling that there is a higher realm, have no desire for a higher realm, and have to be compelled to leave the cave and ascend. Well, that's certainly different from the first philosopher who was described. Right. Yet, yet uh, Socrates takes this type and molds this type into a philosopher. That is, this type um, goes through a very rigorous educational curriculum, at the end of which this philosopher is ready to see the form of the good, the highest form there is. It's a, a quite unusual situation, because we never have confronted in, in anywhere in Plato a philosopher who doesn't love wisdom, who doesn't yearn for wisdom. So all of this is very strange. And once you realize that this philosopher is one who is coerced and is so different from the first philosopher who is not coerced but who naturally gravitates towards this higher realm, you see that there are two completely different 
paradigms of the philosopher in the Republic. Right. Uh, excellent. So, um, uh, and can I, let me just ask a, a quick a, a sort of clarifying question. So uh, among the vicious types of, of, of folks, um, is the, is the sophist the third type, the person who tries to partake in philosophy or portray himself as a philosopher, but actually has, um, vicious aims in mind or, um, does the sophist not fit into this, 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 um, uh, set of categories at all? Well, I do think that the third kind is a sophist, though mm-hmm. it's, it's very interesting um, that Socrates says um, we blame the sophists for everything, uh, for all our corruption, but in fact, uh, the biggest sophist of all is the people. Right. That is, the, the sophist reflects the people's desires and kind of um, mirrors those desires back to them and uh, is really um, quite skilled at mastering the values of the people and educating the people in the things the people um, already value. Right. Um, So even though I think that the sophist is a villain uh, here in in the Republic, the only reason the sophist can be a villain is because the people um, themselves have uh, the, the bad values that the sophists then reflect. Right. So, yeah, they're bad guys, and they, they kind of are the third type. Um, the way Socrates describes the third type, they certainly sound like sophists. They use right. ad hominem arguments, and, and they're clever and all that sort of thing. Um, but he, he is kind of circumspect about... Uh, blaming the sophist for everything. Right, right. Well, and so one of the things that emerges out of uh, out of your discussion um, of these these four types is um, the claim that Socrates is at least um, uh, plausibly seen as um, a fifth type. Is that right? That that Socrates reflects a, a slight twist on the first kind, or some blending of the uh, of 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 the two good philosophic natures. Is this right? Right. Um, there's uh, in my taxonomy uh, there there are the four types that we have are not all philosophers, right? They, right. There's uh, the only two who are philosophers are the first type who have a philosophic nature and blossom into philosophers, and the last type who have no philosophic nature, ironically enough, but are somehow manufactured and turned into philosophers through this rigorous curriculum. Um, the other two types, uh, the first type is is one that has a philosophic nature but goes awry mm-hmm. and never never matures into a real philosopher. And the, the third type, of course, is the sophist or something like a sophist uh, who lacks a philosophic nature and cannot be and is never um, a philosopher. So we really have of the philosopher as opposed to of, of the philosophic types. Uh, there are only two so far. There's the first type and the last type. Right. Um, and then my question, actually the question that I pose to myself, is where does Socrates fit in? Now, what's interesting is that Socrates hardly speaks about himself at all in the Republic, but there is one place in the Republic where he talks about himself, and He includes himself in this very small, select group of of what I call philosophers by nature, the first type, Um, and he um, speaks about himself as being a member of this small group. But as one looks at the description of this small group, one sees, on the one hand, the ways in which Socrates, as as he's portrayed, for example, in the Apology, is just like these people. And on the other hand, a way, one way in particular, in which he is not like these people. There's more than one way, but one way that's very striking. What he says about these philosophers by nature, of of of, in, in in whose group he includes himself, is that. They would uh, fight.
fight for justice. They would rule and they would fight for justice um, if only the conditions were right. That is, if they had what, what Socrates calls um, a fellow fighter, somebody to fight with them, an ally. Um, and if the um, society wasn't rife with corruption, because in a, in a very corrupt society, these philosophers would not last very long and could benefit neither themselves nor anyone else. Right. And so, as he goes on to say, um, these philosophers um, retire and kind of huddle against a little wall and preserve their own souls from the corruption that surrounds them and at least uh, ensure that their own souls are free of corruption so that they don't um, do anything anything unjust or unholy and their souls remain in, in their original pristine condition. Well, when one reads that, one is struck by how different Socrates reacts how differently Socrates reacts to uh, a society that is rife with corruption and in which he has no fellow fighter. Right. One thing we can say about Socrates is that he's not a retiring figure. Right. <laughs> that right. he's um, very in your face, that he uh, really does engage people even um, at great risk to himself. And the last thing he does is worry only about the pristine condition of his own soul. Right. So there it is. It's, it's glaring right in your face that he's like these philosophers, but he's not really like these philosophers. There's something special about him. Faced with the identical conditions, he um, responds in a very different way. He doesn't preserve himself. He still tries somehow to help other people to improve their souls or you know in some in some way engage in the therapeutic practice that he's famous for right and am i right to think that um we might even see socrates as somebody who um puts his own virtue at risk in certain contexts for the sake of improving others um that he might um uh um take the project of trying to improve the souls of others or to cultivate the virtues of others, um, he might see that project as something that's worth um, putting himself at risk for, even though um, uh, you know, putting his own virtue perhaps at risk for? Well, I don't think he would ever put his own virtue at risk. Um, I think he would put himself at risk, that is, he would put his life at risk, but not his virtue. I mean, I think one of the things that's clearest about Socrates is that um, if you're virtuous, there's nothing that can harm you. If you're right. virtuous, um, that's who you are. And... Um, I don't think he, he ever feels that there's any risk of his sacrificing his, his virtue. He can't even conceive of a condition in which he would have to sacrifice his virtue. Anything would go before that, um, you know, including his life. Right. So I don't think that's an issue for him. Um, he does do things that I think maybe some of us would um, would think are, is, uh, are not virtuous, Um you know, in particular, the tactics that he uses with people. Uh, I think he does use tactics that some of us might frown upon, but I think he thinks that he's helping them, and, and so in that respect, he is maintaining his virtue. One of the right. things that's, that's striking in the, in, in the apology is that he denies all the charges against him except for the charge that he makes the weaker argument the stronger. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I think with good reason. <laughs> well, um, just moving on, uh, and this is uh, also a, a nice occasion for, for asking about this. The, the second movement, uh, one of the second sort of moves in the book is um, to call attention to uh, something that, uh, you know, I confess I hadn't noticed, but, you know, again, I, I'm not a, a, a student of, of, of the text, but um, I was really um, you know, one of the eye-opening sort of features of the book was the uh, the fact that in the Republic, piety is not listed among one of the virtues. Um, 
yet um, in lots of places, the, the apology is, 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 is you know, the, perhaps the most obvious. Um, when Socrates talks about why he does the things that he does, um, it's a story about piety. It's a story about doing what the god has uh, bid him to do um, and performing a certain kind of service to the gods. Um, so uh, I, I was uh, um, really uh, intrigued by uh, by your observation uh, that piety is absent from the Republic. Um, can you tell us what you make of that? It's, it's a very interesting question. Um, what what some scholars do is is assume that there are only four cardinal virtues and piety is not among them, and that's why piety is not mentioned in the Republic. But I think that's putting the cart before the horse. I think um, where the notion came from that there are four cardinal virtues and, and piety <laughs> not among them is right. the Republic. <laughs> <laughs> because if you, if you look elsewhere, um, you know, in Greek thought, piety looms large. And of course, in as you mentioned yourself, in other Platonic dialogues, piety figures very um, prominently and is listed as one of the virtues, as one of the five virtues, in fact. Right. So it is rather conspicuously missing from the Republic. Um, the only character who talks about it uh, really is Cephalus, um, but what he means by piety is, is sacrificing properly and getting on the good side of the gods through offering the right kinds of sacrifices. In fact, he seems to sacrifice day and night. Right. <laughs> <laughs> A few minutes. Am I right? Am I right? <laughs> am I right to remember that he enters the the Republic after he's done a sacrifice, and then he, a couple of Stephanus pages, leaves to do another one? Is that yeah, is that right? A few words of conversation, and he's off to sacrifice again. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> of course, you no. Know, he's his, he feels his death is imminent, so he he better get the sacrifices before it's too late. That's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and and the only other, interestingly, the only other time that that piety is actually mentioned is uh, when Socrates uh, is kind of. Um, cornered into defending justice when he's not sure that he he's really up to the task, um, but he says it would be impious of him not to defend justice when it clearly needs to be defended. So even though he's, he's not capable of, of offering a proper defense, he has to do it because of the demands of piety. Mm. And it's very interesting that right after he says that, he omits piety from the list of the virtues. <laughs> so it's quite striking um, that he wants us to see that that's missing because right after he mentions what piety demands of us, he then uh, proceeds to omit piety from the list. There could be all sorts of reasons uh, for why piety is omitted. Um, my own take on this is that, um, that just as Socrates, as this third paradigm of the philosopher, is suppressed in the Republic, but it, it's very much there. So too, the um, virtue of piety is suppressed in the Republic, and it's very much there, and it's there in Socrates. So the, the, the philosopher who was suppressed and the virtue that is suppressed go hand in hand. What I try to argue is that piety is a form of justice. It's um, a special kind of justice in that it's kind of justice plus. It's, um, it will contain all the things that justice contains, but it will go further. And the two ways in which I think piety uh, outstrips justice is the risk factor, because what we see in the difference between Socrates and the philosophers among whom he includes himself is that when the risk is great, they retire from, from the public arena, yet he persists in his own way in the public arena um, at that point when there is risk. And secondly, I think the other feature of, of, of piety is humility. And I think that one of the aspects of both of the other paradigms of philosopher in the Republic is that they're depicted as already being godlike, as already uh, having uh, seen the forms, um, already um, 
transcending this realm of, of the material. And therefore, it's hard to think of what piety would be for someone who is virtually a god himself. So I think we can't find really a pious attitude um, in someone who is not humble, in someone who, who is not uh, very, very uh, aware of his own limitations and his um, falling short of what he knows is out there, but he can't reach. So I think Socrates is really the paradigm of, the, of this virtue of piety, that he risks his life for what he believes in, for the philosophic life or the philosophic activity that he engages in, and also that he is humble in this sense that he recognizes his own limitations. It seems to me that neither of the philosophers depicted in the Republic could qualify as pious um, from either of those perspectives. So he represents for me a third paradigm. The interesting thing that, that then suggests itself is if each of the other two paradigms of the philosopher has a city associated with, with him, um, then maybe there's a third city that we also don't see in the Republic, uh, where there'd be lots of Socrates types in charge <laughs> in some way. <laughs> that, you know, a city that Plato would prefer to either of the two that he um, describes in the Republic itself. Right. Um, so if we so – let me ask now uh, about um, justice uh, in the Republic. Um, uh, so um, – Again, one of the other uh, eye-opening um, observations, uh, for me at least, um, in reading your book, was um, the oddness of the account of moderation uh, that that one gets uh, from Socrates in the Republic, um, where it looks as if, um, in fact, I, if I'm remembering correctly, you even put it this way: given what Socrates says about wisdom and what Socrates says uh, about courage and the 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 the, the leader gold sold uh, uh, types and the um, uh, the fighting thematic types, um, well, it looks as if you know the account of moderation should run such and. You know, analogously, the the moderation is the this virtue that's appropriate to the bronze and uh, and iron sold uh, uh, working class uh, uh, in the republic. Um, but then you say, yeah, but that's not exactly what Socrates says moderation is, in that the account of moderation that Socrates does give gives moderation a kind of um, relational value. It's uh, it, it's it's a different kind. It looks like a different kind of virtue. And uh, the argument that you present runs is that moderation looks a lot like what justice turns out to be—the sort of the right, you know, the right measure within the soul, or the right relations between the different parts of the soul. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, about how that argument runs? I found it very, very persuasive. I should say. Thank you. Yes, um, the the picture of the soul, and of course of the city as well, that that Socrates presents. Um, is tripartite that that the soul has three parts and the and the city has three parts, and as he goes through the four virtues, he puts one virtue in one part, the second virtue in the second part, the third virtue and the fourth virtue not in any particular part but in the soul as a whole, right. and it just seems. Um, so unbalanced and really uncalled for, for Socrates not to assign moderation, as you say, to the bronze class. Okay, that yeah. is, there are many ways in which he describes moderation as the virtue of the, the lower class um, and, of course, the, the appetitive part of the soul. Um, moderation is when this part of the city or this part of the soul uh, is restrained. And it seems like it ought to be the virtue of this third part of the soul. And the other advantage of that is then if, if Socrates wants to make justice the virtue of the soul as a whole, um, that's fine. He's now got one virtue in each of the parts, and then he's got a kind of systemic virtue, which is justice. 
but he doesn't do that. Uh, he doesn't give the appetitive part of the soul any virtue and has only wisdom and courage in the top two respective parts of the city and soul. And um, then these two other virtues which collide with one another because they're, they're both the systemic virtue of the soul. They're both... It's very hard to see what's different about them. <laughs> right. They seem to be the same virtue. It didn't have to be that way, which is what's striking about it. Socrates could so easily have done it the other way. <laughs> and we see um, many times uh, in the course of, of the discussion of the virtues that Socrates uh, doesn't have a, um, a good way of distinguishing moderation from justice, and in fact seems hell-bent on destroying any possible distinction there might have been. Yet, at the same time, he's extremely insistent that there are four distinct virtues, and justice is the hardest one to find, and once we define the others, we'll have what justice is in what remains. Right. But nothing remains. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever he wants to say about justice, and it, it's very striking if one looks at the text. Everything he wants to say about justice, he's already said about moderation. And there are some cute things, like for example, um, after he's discussed wisdom and courage, uh, he then says, well, how about if we skip moderation and go straight to justice? <laughs> and, and even earlier than that, um, when they're finally ready to talk about justice, he says, well, why don't you guys handle it? I'll, I'll leave now. Uh, you know, <laughs> so it's clear that justice is problematic for him. Um, and once he defines moderation the way he chooses to define it, there really is no place left for justice. It's just um, a duplication of moderation. One has to wonder why he would do something like that, especially right. when there's such a clear alternative. And um, since he's so insistent that justice is different from the others, uh, it's it's particularly puzzling as to why he would run these two um, distinct virtues together in this way. Um, as I understand what uh, what Plato is doing, or what Plato is doing through Socrates here, um, what he's doing is in effect saying that if I define justice as an internal virtue, as something that is um, internal to the person's soul or internal to the city, either way, it really isn't any different from moderation. That if, if we're going to define justice as a harmony of the parts in the soul or each part doing its own and not meddling in the, in the job of some, of some other part, then we don't really need justice. We already have that in moderation. And if one looks at the texts, the exact same words are used to describe moderation and to describe justice in this way. It seems right. clear that, that the text is, is therefore crying out for us to say, oh, well, that, that's not what justice is then. Okay, if, if that's what moderation is, then that can't be what justice is. And this great innovation or presumed great innovation in the Republic um, where justice is... Um, completely um, re-described and unfamiliarly described as something internal to the soul um, seems like a mistake. Seems like um, it seems that Socrates doesn't really think that, or he wouldn't make it the same as moderation. Right. Um, which. Um, raises the question, well then, you know, is justice a distinct virtue? And if so, what is distinctive about it? And I think that it's it's quite clear that except for this small place in the Republic, in, in Book 4, where Socrates describes justice as an internal virtue, um, in the rest of the Republic, and pretty much anywhere else you would look in the Platonic corpus, justice really is distinct from moderation in that it's an interpersonal right. virtue, and it, it really is not an internal virtue. It's a disposition to treat others in a certain way, and it's not a matter of how your internal parts relate to one another. That's moderation. Right. 
Um, and I think, um, although most readers of The Republic are struck by our finally getting a definition of justice in book four, I think the fact is that we get much, much, a much clearer exposition of what justice is in book one of The Republic, where Socrates is doing his usual thing of talking to a series of interlocutors precisely about the question of what justice is. And I think we find there justice as an interpersonal virtue. Um, it really has to do with not harming others, perhaps with helping others, uh, with improving their souls, all those kinds of things that are interpersonal and are not internal. So then, of course, the question arises, well, then why does Socrates make such a point of uh, making justice an internal virtue? And here is where I think the dialogue form is the answer or the therapeutic model of philosophy is the answer. I think the problem that Socrates confronts in the Republic is that his interlocutors, actually all of his interlocutors, are unable to appreciate the value of justice as an interpersonal virtue because they all uniformly see justice as an interpersonal virtue as profitable to the recipient and not to the agent. Right. And the, the, the theme that runs through the discussion of justice in the Republic is why is justice rather than injustice profitable for me? I think Socrates really does think that injustice, I'm sorry, that justice is first and foremost profitable for someone else. And that's what justice is all about. And that there's something noble about a virtue that is not centered on oneself, but centered on others. And it's not as if it's, it's not beneficial to the agent, but it certainly is primarily beneficial to someone else. This is what no one can understand in the Republic. No one sees the nobility. No one sees the value in a virtue that is other-regarding and not self-regarding. So what we see in book four is Socrates pressed to defend justice to people who cannot appreciate a virtue that is not profitable for oneself. And so he very blatantly um, turns justice into moderation, which is a self-regarding virtue and which people like Glaucon and Adamantus could easily embrace. There is some subterfuge here. Right. Um, but I think... Socrates' main goal is to have the people he's talking to come to value justice rather than to disparage it. And if he has to turn justice into moderation in order to, to get people to embrace it, he'll do it. Well, that's um, yeah, that, that that that's excellent um, uh, and, and and very very intriguing. Um, so next time I teach the Republic, I'm going to have to to think uh, think anew about uh, all, all kinds of issues, um, especially in light of what what, what you just uh, what you just laid out. Um, so you've been very generous with your time. So uh, I, I usually ask our uh, guests uh, one last question: um, uh, what what what's coming next for you, Rosalind? I'm not exactly sure. Um, I, when I wrote this book, I actually had three chapters before chapter one. <laughs> so the first iteration of this book um, had three chapters before the first chapter of the book as it appears. Um, what happened is, I guess, something that happens to authors often uh, is that the book was sent out for review, and um, everyone who who was consulted by the publisher seemed to think that the book took a long time to get off the ground. Hmm. And so painful as it was, I lopped off the first three chapters, <laughs> <laughs> you know, which, which uh, was you know, very, very painful. Right. So one thought is to turn some of that material into a book on its own. Um, another thought is to delve more deeply into the later books of the Republic, book in particular books 8 and 9, where the different regimes are discussed and the different um, person personality types, um, 
who are like the different regimes. That's another possibility. The project that I'm working on right now, however, um, perhaps surprisingly, is I'm translating a medieval Hebrew philosophical work um, that has never been translated in its entirety into English. Wow. And uh, the, the name of the, the work is um, Light of the Lord, and the, the philosopher's name is Hastai Kreskas. Hmm. I think it's a, it's a very important work, and the reason I'm translating it is because I want a translation. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good reason. It's like there is none. <laughs> so do it do it yourself. <laughs> so, well, that's excellent. Yes. So, you know, as I say, I, I'm attached not only to the ancients, but the medievals. And um, so this is the project that I'm working on now, though I'll, I will come back to Plato and, and I hope maybe write another book on the Republic, either on the beginning of it or on the end of it. Well, that's wonderful. Uh, I will keep an eye out for uh, all of these future uh, projects, um, and uh, maybe uh, maybe we can have you back on for for an interview about uh, a future book. Um, but for for now, I just wanted to thank you again, Rosalind Weiss, uh, for uh, joining us to talk about your book, Philosophers in the Republic: Plato's Two Paradigms. Thank you so much, Bob. I enjoyed it so much. Well, me too. Thank you. Take care now. You too. Bye bye. You've been listening to my interview with Professor Rosalind Weiss of Lehigh University. We've been talking about her book, Philosophers in the Republic, Plato's Two Paradigms, which is newly published by Cornell University Press. I am Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for listening. <laughs>